Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting November 5th, 2008. I'm Steve Mursky. You may have heard that Barack Obama was elected President of the United States. We'll look at science policy under Obama, plus we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. I was at a science journalists conference in Palo Alto, California last weekend. One of the speakers was Stanford University biologist Sharon Long. She was a science advisor to the Obama campaign. We sat down after her talk to discuss science in an Obama administration. How did you wind up getting involved in the Obama campaign as a science advisor? Well, first, I began supporting uh, Senator Obama as a candidate in the autumn of 2007. And then um, in the winter, just past winter, perhaps it was February or March, Harold Varmus came to Stanford to give a talk. And I saw him at his seminar, and he asked me, are you doing anything uh, related to politics? And I said, well, nothing except that I support Senator Obama. So he said, I would really like to talk with you about something that I'm getting started. And um, we, we spoke briefly after that, after his talk, and he asked me if I would join the uh, advisory committee because he was just starting to put it together. And so it's since that time I've been, uh, I've been working with the committee. Harold Varmus, of course, is a Nobel laureate who's been a primary science advisor to the Obama campaign. What are the major enterprises that an Obama administration would engage in right away in terms of science? A future Obama administration would take a multi-pronged approach to using science and technology in uh, the national interest. The most uh, important first goal is to restore the integrity of science advice given to our uh, national leaders to ensure that decisions are informed by science, that they are given uh, excellent advice, impartial advice, and that uh, that advice is heard. Don't we, um, that's very important obviously, but don't we need to have to, don't we need to address it from the other direction as well? And that is, there seems to me to have been Less than a disinterest in science, almost a disdain for science in some quarters in the power structure lately. And, and that has bled into the general population where you have large segments of, of the country that don't even respect science as an enterprise, as a, as a vehicle for learning about things. So don't we have to really address that issue and get people back on board. I'm not saying everybody has to be wearing a science is great t-shirt, but don't we have to get back to a place where people just think that the quality of information that is supplied by science is good? I agree with you and with many that science is not well understood and that the public or certain segments of the public may not understand the unique nature of reproducible, empirical study that science can provide and the predictive power that results from doing highly controlled, well-analyzed scientific research. I believe that with respect to what our uh, national leaders can do, setting the example of listening to science and respecting it can play a major role. That could make a big difference for the way in which science is regarded. So tell me some more about what's going to be 
coming down from the top in terms of uh, science priorities and funding. In order to use science to address some of our big challenges, we need not just impartial and excellent advice that's informed by evidence rather than ideology, but we need to assure that the nation has a, a, a vibrant and healthy science infrastructure. And we see that as requiring um, several elements. First, um, support by the federal government for basic research. Basic research is the foundation of so much that happens in terms of economic improvement, innovation in manufacturing, and improvements in health care. I think the public understanding of basic research has languished because so much of it goes on invisibly, and because if you took any one part of it out, it would sound unlikely or unrelated to everyday life. But it is a fact that basic research has created a very large part of the economic growth of our society in the last 50 years. And investing in that kind of basic research is an important way for we, us to go forward, even in these challenging economic times. In addition to research, a second aspect of assuring our nation's uh, scientific health is to work on science education, which, of course, includes K-12 through as well as community colleges, uh, university education, both for science majors and non-science majors alike, and for uh, graduate students who are going to train either for careers in research or engineering or for um, careers in other areas, including government, where advanced training at science and at the methods of scientific thinking would be very helpful. So I see education as the second uh, important element. And third, the health of the nation's science uh, in, in the future requires that we support the private sector. And Senators Obama and Biden both are uh, very supportive of making the kinds of changes in infrastructure, tax structure, and a patent system that will um, encourage our uh, great creative uh, American scientists and engineers to be able to innovate, to bring those innovations to market, to create new jobs, and to improve life for, for all of us. It's, it's very strange to me that in this anti-tax climate, the R&D tax credit has not been made permanent. Yes, and uh, not being either um, uh, active in politics or in economics, I can't tell you why that is. But I do think it would make a difference for having our companies able to plan for the long term. And I think many people feel that uh, American, uh, American companies um, – need to be able to plan for a longer term than just the bottom line for the next quarter's earning reports in order to carry out the kind of thorough, innovative science uh, research and engineering research that will actually lead to the, their company's health and our nation's economic health in the future. Another thing that uh, might not have been too obvious during the, the campaign with the, uh, the tenor of it at times, but the uh, an Obama administration also plans to do away with capital gains taxes in certain cases to promote science innovation. Yes, the um, Obama-Biden administration would eliminate all capital gains taxes on startup and small businesses. This is a way of encouraging innovation and also uh, job creation. <clears throat> 
because Senator Obama believes that small businesses are so important and he understands the challenges that they face, um, he also proposes that he would provide health insurance companies with a new small business health tax credit that would help uh, small businesses uh, provide quality health care for, uh, for their employees. And the many technology uh, startups would be in a situation where this would be extremely important, and both the tax and the uh, health care assistance parts of the uh, Obama plan I think would be really beneficial. So if Joe the Plumber's company should uh, endeavor to create a new kind of flange, <laughs> there might be some uh, economic breaks for them there. <laughs> well, possibly, but I think that they'd have to uh, they'd have to be looking at their uh, at their balance sheets, and I I'm not an expert in that. That's fine. I uh, you mentioned how it it can sound strange to the public when a particular uh, small bit of research is cherry picked for exposition. And uh, I couldn't help but think about the statement that Governor Palin made, where she denigrated fruit fly research which I I found to be absolutely stunning. Could you just tell me, for one thing, why are fruit flies so damn important? And what was your reaction when you heard her make that statement? So when um, Governor Palin um, criticized last week... um, earmarks and uh, wasteful spending. As an example, she said, did you know, she said to her audience, did you know that there is money in the federal government for fruit fly research and it's even in Paris? I kid you not. So the governor um, criticized um, the fact that uh, the federal government includes research funds uh, for work on fruit flies in Paris, France. She um, then left it at that, saying, I kid you not, and and I suspect got a very rousing um, uh, response from her audience. But that cuts cuts close to home for me in two ways. First, that particular project is actually an agricultural project. It's on a particular kind of fruit fly that infests the olive tree. For us in California, olive tree and pests on olive trees are a big problem. It's a very important part of our agricultural economy and, of course, a a wonderful tradition as well. The reason why the USDA has a project in France, the same way it does in many, many other nations is that this is a kind of pest problem that France also deals with. And they have a highly skilled lab facility, a small portion of our USDA's efforts uh, to study this pest are in cooperation with this lab of experts in Paris, France. So I think it was uh, very disappointing that something so worthwhile and so close to the earth as uh, helping olive farmers was picked on as an example of waste. I think that's uh, that's a shame. Furthermore, if we were talking about the generic fruit fly, the Drosophila fruit fly that uh, so many laboratories works on, it's doubly ironic that Governor Palin would have criticized that when just a few weeks ago uh, a laboratory here in the United States was able to report um, a great advance in the study of a gene uh, that may uh, be influential and important for the understanding of autism. A, uh, a condition that um, many of us hope will be greatly helped through research. This research was done on fruit flies right here in the United States, and it's uh, an example, again, of how basic research might sound funny if you pick on it, 
but it can have an amazing and wonderful effect on the on our uh, nation's health in terms of, of people uh, or in terms of our economy. And I'd also like to point out to listeners who maybe aren't familiar with genetic research and fruit fly research, if we wanted to, we could spend 300 hours probably talking about every particular discovery in molecular biology, in biology, in agriculture that has been made working with fruit flies. You could say the Human Genome Project itself is an outgrowth of fruit fly research, couldn't you? Yes, I think that from the uh, early part of the 20th century through the present, uh, genetic research on fruit flies has provided us with some of the most important advances that we've had in the understanding of the nature of the gene and of how genes cause cells to grow, develop, and change. Yeah, and I, I didn't mean to spend five minutes picking on Governor Palin. I thought it was worth talking about this as an example of how you need to understand this. We just had to, uh, we just had to blow a fly off, off the table. It wasn't a fruit fly, but it was a house fly that came to visit for a second. But it's just important to understand that anytime you pick out a particular piece of research for ridicule, it may sound ridiculous to the public when they don't have the context in which to place it because it's, these things are all pieces of a whole. You know, you have people working on sea urchins, and it might sound ridiculous, but it's part of our understanding of development that may wind up having a, an impact on uh, birth defect work in humans, and that's why this kind of basic research is so important. I'd like to follow up what you were just saying by mentioning, the again, the importance of science education, not just for scientists, but for all of our citizens. Um, educating all Americans in science is important so that we can be a nation of engaged citizens, so that we and uh, our fellow citizens can make critical decisions that our nation's going to be facing and that we face in our own lives as well. I think that leadership, uh, as I mentioned earlier, leadership of paying attention to science, uh, respecting what it has to say, can make a big difference in the way that this, um, the nation as a whole looks at science. I'll also just add something from my own point of view, which is I, and I believe most scientists, I don't believe that science has to drive every decision. Decisions have to be made using many, many factors. But I want science advice to be heard, to be considered, and to be represented honestly. And if a decision is made that um, is not exactly what science would have recommended, what I would hope to see is the acknowledgement that sci the sci scientific advice said X. We are also considering these other factors, which might be social or economic. And for those reasons, we are going to do X minus three, or we're going to do Y. That kind of acknowledgement of science uh, is, I think, the proper role for it to have in thoughtful leadership. Rather than discarding the scientific input as not being part of the decision-making process at all. Or, or denigrating it, in fact. Rather than uh, discarding it, denigrating it, or in some cases misrepresenting it. And I think that that's a concern um, that has happened over the, the past number of years, that good science advice existed, um, but the parts of it that didn't happen to match um, a political or ideological goal were eliminated so that the overall 
uh, advice looked very different than uh, the total picture should have been. As a scientist, my job is to give the very best scientific advice I can and to do so in a way that would be true no matter what context I was in. This is really what I think. Based on everything I know, this is the best advice I can give you. But to realize there's a give and take. Other scientists uh, who've uh, done just as much reading and research might have a different idea. And that's the best way in which I think policy can be made. My impression of... Um, of Barack Obama is that he is a person who can listen to many points of view and take in more than one idea, be thoughtful about it, and bring it together. That appeals to me as a scientist because that's what we have to do as well, to be aware that there are complexities, to seek after knowledge, but to be respectful of the limits of our knowledge as well. I hope that with Barack Obama we would have that kind of leader. You want to talk for just a couple minutes about your particular expertise? You, you, you mentioned that it's in, it's in crop research in part and, uh, and the specifics of what the administration plans to do in those areas. Um, my own area of research is on the symbiosis between beneficial soil bacteria and plants in the legume family. And this is familiar to many because it's the basis for crop rotation. Plants such as beans, uh, clover, alfalfa, which is what I study, or soybean, are members of a plant family that have the unique ability to host beneficial bacteria in their roots. Now, because of the bacteria... Um, and because they have the bacteria in their roots, these plants are actually able to flourish using nitrogen that the bacteria convert from a form that's in the air into a molecule that the plants make protein out of. That means that these plants don't need nitrogen fertilizer. This is the reason why, for example, the Native Americans had the uh, practice of planting a little mound with squash, beans, and corn. The beans didn't just produce a great seed. They also provided nitrogen nourishment for themselves and for the little mound of plants that were around them. Um, likewise, uh, crop rotation has been used uh, in the ancient world, in the Mediterranean, and in many other cultures uh, throughout uh, throughout the world. That is important because crop rotation of that kind is a cornerstone of sustainable agriculture. And my work is very basic. I don't really study the um, applications in the field, but I do work on the question of how bacteria and plants can recognize each other in a highly specific way and how they can come together in a complex process so that the bacteria are benefiting the plant by providing them with the nitrogen that they need to make lots of protein. Um, and in return, the plant, which can carry out photosynthesis, is able to provide sugars and other energy to the bacteria. So each partner uh, benefits from uh, the exchange. That's uh, my great love in research. Uh, whether that will be um, addressed in particular in the science plans of the future administration isn't known to me, but it is something that relates to energy, to productivity, to sustainability. So I hope that along with all of my colleagues in the United States who study this, uh, I hope we'll all be able to uh, make application and try to make our case for uh, doing good science and create some benefits from that. Some enlightened self-interest for you then to be involved here. Well, I think the most important uh, self-interest for me in this is as a citizen, that I, I see what science can do. I'm also very respectful of the limits of science, but I think that the kind of impartial advice that scientists can give can be 
very, very helpful to the country as it faces huge challenges. And I'll have to be honest, if I had been asked by any of the other campaigns to provide science advice, I would have said yes to that as well. As it happens, this campaign aligns my heart with my expertise. But I would have um, wanted to help science have an appropriate say and be of appropriate help to our nation uh, in whatever way we move forward. For more on science in the next administration, check out the in-depth report on the SIAM website called Science and the U.S. Election. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, scientists have cloned a woolly mammoth. Story two, the World Toilet Summit is taking place this week. Story three, women have a more diverse population of bacteria on their hands than men do. And story four, at least 20,000 people die from snake bites each year. Time's up. Story four is true. Snakes kill at least 20,000 people worldwide annually. 400,000 people are poisoned by snakes each year. That's according to research published in the journal Public Library of Science Medicine. Most deaths occur in poor regions, and the researchers say that because information may not reach medical authorities, it's possible that over 90,000 people actually die from snake bites each year, and you're worried about sharks. Story three is true. Women's hand bacteria is more diverse than the bacteria found on men's hands. That's according to work published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Women's skin is less acidic than men's, which may allow more kinds of bacteria to flourish. Other possible causes, skin thickness, hormones, differences in sweat and oil production, and the use of moisturizers or cosmetics. And story two is true. The three-day World Toilet Summit is taking place in Macau. The goal is to find ways to get clean sanitation to the two and a half billion people who do not have access to hygienic toilets worldwide. For more info, check out the November 5th episode of the Daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science. All of which means that story one about scientists cloning a woolly mammoth is totally bogus. But what is true is that Japanese researchers have successfully cloned mice whose bodies were frozen for as long as 16 years. They reported the work in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. The technique may eventually allow frozen remains to be the source of cloned mammoths, mastodons, and Ted Williams. Well, that's it for this edition of Scientific American Science Talk. Visit Siam.com for all the latest science news, blogs, and videos. For Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Thank you.